Today's scripture comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, or hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's the word of God. Morning. Let's uh, let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, you are big and otherly, and we are small in need of your grace and your kindness this morning, as we have sung songs. Uh, just reflected of that this morning. God, Lord Jesus, I just, I just confess even in my own heart that I, that I don't see you as I ought to see you. That this week I haven't uh, seen you as uh, big and as good. That I've been uh, preoccupied with other things, other wants, other needs. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray for us as we come uh, this morning to sit under your word that we would receive from you like a, like a good daddy teaches his kids, Lord Jesus, that we, would, that we would come before your throne of grace, that we would be expectant um, not to hear my words, the feeble, weak, powerless uh, words, but that we would... Uh, uh, dig into your word, the abundant word of life this morning. God, I pray that as we open this text that you'd um, guard um, me from saying anything that is untrue, that you'd give me um, unction to proclaim it um, as, as we ought to proclaim it, Lord Jesus, that you would um, incline uh, my heart and my mind to be um, uh, worshiping to you, that you'd incline our hearts to worship you this morning through coming under your word. And so um, we ask that of you, that you'd be with us, that you'd give us favor this morning um, for your good and for the good of your blood-bought people. We love you. Amen. Men, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Jason. Uh, for those of you who don't uh, know me, uh, it's my pleasure to open up um, God's word with you all. This morning, we're uh, in the book of uh, Philippians uh, towards the end 
really. Some of you are doing a sigh of relief. Um, I'm doing a sigh of relief that I only have to use the word, the name Epaphroditus one more time, you know? Um, man, like every time I come up onto that, um, I'm like, how do you, you know? So uh, kudos to both scripture readers who nailed that because um, I might butcher it when it comes to reading it this morning for myself. But um, no, it's been uh, good. I hope that it's been profitable and good to you. Um, if you're new with us this morning, we've entitled this sermon series, Encouraged to Press On. And um, I hope you've been uh, served uh, by it. I know that uh, Emily and I have been encouraged in, in some significant ways. If you, if you weren't here with us last week or the last two weeks, uh, rather, you missed um, two uh, men that did a fabulous job opening up God's word. Um, two weeks ago, um, Dan Konzik um, opened up God's word as he led us through the first part of chapter four, and we dealt with the issue of conflict and how we ought to respond in light of conflict. And then last week, uh, Bevan did a fabulous job about walking us through um, the issue of anxiety. And what does it look like to respond um, living in an anxious world, being anxious people? Um, I'm thankful for those two men and their um, uh, study of the text. And um, not only did they... um, uh, exegete the text well, um, but they brought us to Jesus, and I'm thankful for that. Um, That they uh, encourage us to press on not only for the sake of Jesus, but that Jesus is the power to uh, encounter conflict. He is the power to encounter anxiety in the world that we live in, and so thankful for those men. I pray that that I handle um, this text with uh, the gospel gloves that they did. Um, this morning, we're gonna deal with two um, applicable context, uh, the, uh, concepts, the idea of contentment. And if I say the word commitment, like I did in the first service, you'll just have to give me some grace. It's actually contentment, not commitment, okay? So it's contentment, that's the first uh, concept. And then the other concept is that of charity. Um, I've entitled the message marked on, marked by his provision. Marked, marked by his provision. And as I've already uh, just said, there seems to be these two uh, lingering concepts. One of them's overt, actually. It's the idea of contentment, okay? The other one is a little more subtle. It's the idea of charity. And I'm gonna argue that the ultimate thrust of the text isn't about contentment. It actually has um, something else here for us. And I'm definitely going to argue that it doesn't have to do with you being able to do all things that you set your mind to by him who strengthens you. Uh, Emily and I, my wife, uh, joked about this a little bit. She sent me a funny cartoon. So why don't we throw that up here as an example of what this text is not saying. Word. Okay. So uh, if it's not fully about contentment, but it has um, some other applications, a greater thrust, and it's definitely not about um, pulling a text out of context, what is these verses all about? Well, I would have us consider that it's about being marked by his provision. That these ideas, these good ideas, the idea of contentment and the idea of charity have their expression 
in a greater truth, a truth found in believing and trusting and therefore living out the reality that our God does provide. So the roadmap for this morning, the big idea marked by his provision. And then we're gonna answer the questions. How does commitment relate to that? Okay, and then we're gonna ask the question, how does charity relate to that? And then um, by God's grace, if we get there, we will get there. We're gonna spend some time connecting the dots and working our way through figuring out what it all actually looks like to be marked. Like, what does that actually mean, the, the so what of it all? So um, if you have your Bibles, let's crack those things open again. Um, we're gonna reread a couple of the, the verses and see what God has for us. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul restates his uh, thankfulness to this Philippian church to partner with him with the gospel. And we really don't know, actually, how they partnered with him. We don't know as to what extent they partnered with Paul or how often they gave to Paul. We simply know that they're burdened for Paul. And then this text also says that there's, there's actually times in which they, uh, there was no opportunity for them to exercise their burden of being concerned for Paul. Now, that could be a lot of different things. Maybe two um, practical examples of that is like Paul might have not been in need. They may have had a heart to provide and Paul wasn't in need. Somebody else had provided for him. Um, maybe another practical idea is the fact that maybe Paul had a need and they had um, provision to help him, but they had nobody to take the gift to Paul, right? No wire transfer on the phone, right? But regardless, when the opportunity presented itself, they jumped on it and they aided Paul. They gave to Paul. They were charitable to Paul. And Paul's response is kind of odd to me, if I'm really honest about it. What, is he, what does he say? He says, like, thank you, but I'm not really in need, right? Verse, verse 11 says that. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Now, it's like a head scratcher for me a little bit as I'm thinking about this text, as I'm studying it this week. Um, um, is Paul being disingenuous about his thankfulness to these people? Like, hey, you know, that was nice of you to give to me, but I actually have this thing called uh, contentment, so I'm good. See, being uh, disingenuous with us, you know, like I, 
No, he, he, he's not, right? He, he, Paul is sincere. We've seen this from the beginning of the letter until now that he is thankful time and again for the way that this church has partnered with Paul. Um, we, we see this in verse 16 that he acknowledges not only that they partnered with him, but that he actually has needs. It says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So there's this confusing reality that I see looming here. This confusing reality of having needs, but not being in need. You see the tension between those two things? Paul draws a line between his needs, yes, I, I have needs, but Paul doesn't seem to consider that he's in need. So I'm thinking about that, like... How do those reconcile each other? Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Like, how do those two things coexist? I think the answer might lie with the concept of contentment. Maybe contentment distinguishes between your needs and you being in need. How you can have needs and not consider yourself as in need. So, if that's true, what's contentment? Well, the, the, the Webster Dictionary defines contentment as a state of uh, happiness or satisfaction. We know that this text, um, commit, uh, contentment, there I go, commitment, contentment does not have anything to do with our, our past, our present, or our future circumstances. We, we see that it does not have anything to do with the absence of needs. It's actually the presence of needs. It doesn't have anything to do with having abundance, being brought low or facing plenty or hungry. Maybe at its most basic definition, this, type, this text might define contentment as having needs, but not giving consideration for your needs. Having needs, but not giving consideration to your needs. Maybe it could be said that contentment isn't focused on what it needs, but on what it already has. That's the working definition that we are going to roll with this morning on contentment. Focused on what it has, not on what it needs. And I was studying through this and um, talking through it with my wife, Emily. Um, we're, we're like talking about our needs, right? Like what, what needs do we have? Like what needs uh, do we need to do today? What, what needs um, do, we, do we ultimately have? And um, uh, full transparency, apparently we have a lot of them. Like we had, we had like an hour and a half conversation about the concept of needs. There's a lot. Um, and I thought that it would be good um, for us to walk through a mental exercise on the concept of needs. So if you have a pen and a piece of paper, uh, go ahead and draw a two-by-two two grid and uh, go ahead and throw up that first slide. And on the top left-hand corner of your piece of paper, I want you to write down the phrase, my needs. Okay? And then I want you to fill in a couple of the things. Don't steal everything off of my needs list, please. Um, these are just a couple, like, uh, priming of the pump, so to speak. A couple of the, the needs that I put up there. A house, a car, a job, more obedient kids, yes and amen. Um, you can laugh at that. Um, 
uh, completing my to-do list. They're not in priority uh, because if it was in priority, like the completing of my to-do list would be at the top probably, followed by more obedient kids. Write down a couple of those. Um, Next, on the uh, top right-hand corner, go ahead to the next slide. Uh, I want you to write down the phrase, my wants. And then go ahead and fill in a couple of the things that you, you want, okay? A couple of things that I put up there, a raise. I'd love some more money, actually. Um, more me time, if you know me at all. Um, I'm, I'm actually an introvert, so I love me some me time. Love it. Um, a new slash larger mudroom. Does everybody know what a mudroom is? That wasn't very emphatic. Does everybody know what a mudroom is? Okay, awesome, great. I thought it was like maybe an East Greeley thing. So um, I'm from Greeley. You can laugh at that. Okay, Um, a new uh, truck. Um, I have a relatively new truck, but I want another one. Um, And then I would love, absolutely love more time with my bride without kids specifically. Without my kids. Take a minute, fill that out. My needs versus my wants. And we're going to ask a couple questions of this very simple grid. How did you determine your needs? Maybe another uh, way of saying that is how did you determine what things should go on the left side of the list as opposed to the things that got to go on the right side of the list? Did anybody change anything? after the phrase, my wants, went up? How did you determine what ought to fall under my wants? Maybe another question is, are all of the need items under my need list actual needs? I think the obvious answer is no. They're not all needs. Some of those are obvious wants, maybe good things that I want, right, ultimately, um, like uh, Uh, um, completing my to-do list, like that's a good thing. Having more obedient kids, that's a a good thing, right? A good thing to want, but probably more of a want than than a need. As you think about your list, the lingering question might be is how are our needs determined? And if you think about it, there are scientists, there's philosophers, there are uh, sociologists and psychologists and the like that have given us their thoughts on what your needs are, actually. Just go to Google. You could burn a day, maybe a week, on the things that other people think that you need. I think it's uh, Maslow has the hierarchy of needs, right? The basic hierarchy of needs. He says that you need things like food, shelter, and safety. And then once those three things are met, then you can move to like loving and belonging. And then after those things are met, you can have a self-esteem and self-fulfillment. For Maslow, those are your needs. Those are the universal needs for all humanity, actually. I mean, on the whole, I would say that our culture jumbles the distinction between our wants and our needs, don't they? I 
There isn't a shortage to the answer to the question, what are your needs? But what, is, what does God's word have to say about our needs? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, depicts our need this way. And you were dead. There's a need right there. You need life. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Colossians 1.21 says that we were alienated and hostile in mind. Romans chapter 5 calls us enemies of God. See, this is the biblical need for humanity. That there is a, a, a perfect, holy God and we have rejected him. And now because of our rejection of him, we stand against him. And there is a need for us to be reconciled back to our daddy. And that reconciliation is only really possible because of his mercy and his grace manifested in his son, Jesus, coming. Being obedient where we were obstinate. Where Jesus bore our sin, our shame, and our penalty where he was put to death, even death on a cross, and where he rose victoriously three days later, conquering the penalty and the power of sin, and he's beckoning people to come, to to reject their own efforts and place their faith and trust in his perfect work. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's you and that's me. Why would he do that? So that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, this is the gospel and the glorious person of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. And it ought to be at the very top of our needs list, the remedy for our sin. And that is only remedied, it's only cured in the profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So what does all this talk about needs have to do with this idea of contentment? I know that this text is addressing physical needs. Paul's talking about physical needs given to him by the uh, dear church. But, But where does Paul's contentment come from? Like, where does the secret lie, Paul, tell us? See, the, the secret of contentment is found in the reality that if you believe in Jesus, your greatest need has been met in the cross of Jesus. It's secure, it is not circumstantial, and it does not waver. See, at the heart of biblical contentment is the deep conviction of the value of what we already possess. And that's Christ. 
that we are fully satisfied, fully happy, that our greatest need has been remedied. And we're only capable of such satisfaction because our God made provision for you and for me. in the face of his son, Jesus. And it doesn't simply stop with that reality that God has provided Jesus unto us. The the secret of contentment grows as we trust not only that God provides in, in the past, but that his provision in the future is aligned with his good character, the reality that he loves you and that he's able to do something about it. Let me say that again. Okay, our, our, our contentment grows not only as that we trust in God's past provision for us, which is namely in Jesus, but it grows as we meditate on the future provision that he's going to do for us. And his future provision is aligned with three huge realities. That he is good, that he loves you, and he's able to do something about that. That he's in control. where God is the ultimate good determiner of what you need and what I need. You see, the gospel is the greatest picture of God's care and provision to us. It's the greatest manifestation of knowing your needs. And guess what? God crafted something to uh, to do something about it. That he provided for it. As I said earlier, this text is addressing um, physical bodily needs, like what we will eat, what kind of money we might earn, the type of house we might live in. But the secret of contentment isn't found there. It's found in the reality that our God is a God that provides. Not based on our list of needs, but based on his list of needs for you and I. That our, our trust is is ultimately not only in his provision, but in the knowledge of what we need and his ability to bring it about. Real contentment is founded in the reality that our God provides. See, this, this is like the only way that uh, this man of many needs, Paul, can sit in prison, right, who has a death sentence lingering over his head, and he could say, I'm in, I have needs over here, absolutely. I wanna be free from this place, I don't wanna die. I wanna wanna be freed from this jail, I wanna continue to, to push forward to the advancement of the gospel. That's what I desire, but I'm not in need of it. That's the only way that he could sit in that situation and say those equal truths. This is a hard truth if you think about its implications. I mean, it it means practically that we're not placing our trust just in God's provision, but we're trusting this provision to be enough for you and I. Even when it feels like it isn't enough. That we trust that our God knows better than you and I. It means that when I'm discontent with my job, 
which if you know anything about my story, is something that is festers in my life, if not on a weekly basis, a daily basis, and on some days hourly, is the struggle with discontentment, okay? It, it, it means that I trust that God has already given me all things in Christ, that my fulfillment isn't gonna be contingent on getting a different job, actually. That God isn't only capable to provide my needs because he's shown me to be faithful in the past with my greatest need, but that how he desires to provide for me is gonna be enough for me. That's why Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, commitment is founded in the reality of God's provision. Meditating on what he's already given you. And that's first and foremost, if you're a, a, a professing believer of Jesus, that's Christ. And then it's hundreds, if not thousands, of other good, common grace things like your family, this church, other relationships, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's kids, maybe it's grandkids, maybe it's financial success. And like I said, literally thousands of other undeserved common graces that he gives freely. It's all that stuff. And it's trusting in his future provision that every single promise that he has promised us will find its yes and amen when Jesus comes back and he takes us up in glory. that his future provision will be in line with the reality that he's good, that he loves you, and that he's in control, that he's able to do something about it. That's where the heart of biblical contentment comes from. So, underline that one, moving on to verse 14. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To the God and Father be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. See, we've, we've already seen this, uh, this charitable heart from this Philippian church towards Paul, that they were, they were burdened. They're actually burdened to bring aid to him. And then that burden resulted in action, actually, right? Verse 17 and 18, they give us some insight how charity fits into the greater conversation about God's provision towards us. We see that ultimately a heart of charities is intended just as much, if not more, for the giver 
than the person who's receiving it. That charity in this text is just as important, if not more so important, for the person who's giving than the, the one that is actually receiving. That's why Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I take that to mean that Paul's excited about the fact that they're giving, regardless if he's the recipient of the gift. Because their giving is a sign of their continued valuing of people and things beyond themselves. We also see from this text that charity requires sacrifice that we must forego something that we might want or yes, even need for the sake of others, that charity ultimately requires something of us. We see in this text that it's pleasing unto the Lord. I think at large, that's because it reflects our heavenly Father's heart. Not sure the last time you spent time in 2 Corinthians specifically in chapters eight and nine. I'd encourage us to spend some time there over the next week, maybe. Um, It has encouraged my heart, exhorted my heart towards growing in this area of being charitable. Second Corinthians eight, verse nine says, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that through he, though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, our, our charitable hearts towards one another reflect your heavenly Father's heart towards you and me. We see in this text that this church didn't just give out of compulsion, but out of the conviction that God placed on their hearts. And that might just be, if you think about it, the tip of the iceberg, <laughs> of some of the observations that we can pull from these texts on the concept of being charitable. So how does charity connect with God's provision, the big idea? A couple things for us to consider. First, biblical charity flows out of the belief that it all belongs to God first. That he ultimately is the giver of all things. And when we acknowledge that and we act on it and we are charitable towards people or things, we're actually articulating that in our actions and our deeds. That's not ours. Second, charity flows out of a belief that God will provide for us. If we give and we could have used that money to make a larger mudroom. We'll get there in a second. Okay. Or if we gave and we had a need, okay, it expresses maybe like nothing else that we trust that God will provide. He will either backflow and backfill our need or that we trust that what he deems we need is enough for us. See the connection? So we've quickly looked at charity. We've looked at contentment. We've given the theory behind 
how they flow out of God's provision. But ultimately, what does that actually look like? What does it mean to be marked by his provision? In other words, like, so what, Jason? How is this helpful to me tomorrow morning? How do we apply those principles into our lives? Maybe, um, maybe it would be good, a, a couple things to consider. Maybe it would be good with beginning to identify areas in your life that you want to grow in contentment and in charity. Uh, in full disclosure, um, I actually think that I'm a pretty content guy. Um, and that I'm a pretty charitable guy. And it actually takes people who know me and are willing to uh, love me enough to speak into that like my wife. So Emily and I are talking about this text this week and I felt pretty good about my contentedness and my charitableness. And Emily's like, well, but in her kind, sweet way, if you know my wife, like, but well, like, have you like thought about um, your contentedness and your charitable in this area and this area and this area? in this area, in this area, in this area, this area, this area, okay? And I'm like, okay. Um, the, the, what, she, what she did is she pointed out the reality that I'm a discontented person in some pretty small things in life and some pretty big things in life. Let me share. We have a mudroom and it's not big enough for me, okay? Um, I, I uh, come home from work every day uh, my family owns a dairy. And so um, six days, if not seven days out of the week, I come home in a dirty pickup with dirty clothes, okay? And I swing open the mudroom door to smack a uh, load of laundry that's sitting on the other side of the door, okay? I then jump over the laundry basket and try to dodge my kids' small shoes that are really small, but somehow I always gravitate to tripping over them, okay? And then I turn around, it's just not big enough. It's just too small. It doesn't have enough places to put shoes and boots. It doesn't have a sink. Um, it doesn't have enough hooks to like hang all of my stuff on it. I'm just pretty, it, it's just tight. It feels small to me. And you wanna know how Emily knows that I'm discontent in it? Because it shows up in my life. She hears me curse it under my breath when I come through at night, right? It's like, oh, this stupid thing, you know, whatever it would be, right? She, she hears how I speak about it. She knows how I think about it and how I'm like pondering how we could blow out some walls and, you know, expand this thing at least 200 or 300% its size, right? <laughs> like if you're gonna go, just do it, go big, go home, right? See, I'm, I'm actually marked by discontentment in that area with this mudroom. And it shows up in my life. I struggle with larger contentment issues like my job. Okay, I've already mentioned that. I, I struggle with God's timeline to help get me out of this job and into the next job. Do you know why Emily and other people, especially people in my community, know that about me? Do you know why? Because it shows up in my life. the way I think about it, the way I respond to it, the way that I talk about it at times, it's obvious to people who live with me, who know me. I struggle with contentment when it comes to just stuff, specifically like new stuff. I just love new stuff. I don't know what it is. 
Like I just, there's like some intrinsic value of it being in, intrinsically better because it's new. Yes and amen? Okay, yeah, right? People know that about me because I'm marked by it. If you're like me, it doesn't take too much time actually or too much intentionality to find some areas where you could grow in this. Granted, it may take somebody who loves you enough that is willing to speak into it and help you. So what do you do after you identify it? Which by the way is probably the easiest part. Um, I would submit that it might be good to go through the needs versus wants diagram. Ask some hard questions, be honest with yourself and let other people speak into it and say, okay, is this a need or is this a want? Now hear me on this. There are some good, 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 good wants. Everybody heard me say good. Cool. Okay, there are some good, good, equally good, if not better, needs that we have. Okay, I'm not downplaying those things. I don't want to belittle any of that. Okay, but I do want us to consider the healthy biblical perspective around what we want and what we need. That we would allow God to help determine your list. That it's not just up to you and up to me. So, We've identified the lack of commitment. We've submitted that need or want to God. We've asked him to, to um, like help with some self-reflection. We've asked other people to speak into it, help us discern that. And then lastly, uh, we're called to trust him in it. And the only way that we're gonna grow in trusting him in it is if we continue to marinate and meditate on the greatest expression of his provision to you, which has already been accomplished for you, which is the gospel. I would argue nine times out of 10, a heart of discontentment flows from a heart that isn't marinating in the gospel. So instead of being discontent with the size of my mudroom, which rears its ugly head, I'd ask, is the size of my mudroom a want or a need that I have? Like, honestly, is that a want or is that a need? It's a want. Do you want to know how I know that it's a want? Because God's word doesn't promise a larger mudroom for his people. He just doesn't. doesn't mean that the mudroom's bad to want. We had one beforehand, actually, in another house. That's why it's such a problem. He does, however, promise life and life abundant because of the shed blood of his son where we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so the life abundant must not need a larger mudroom. It's not bad to have a large mudroom. It's not even necessarily bad to want a larger mudroom. But does the, the want drive you to be discontent in what you already have? Maybe a 
a helpful diagnostic question that you could ask yourself or somebody might, you'd give the freedom to have uh, ask to you is, is this, like, how do you feel if you don't get what you want? How do, how do you feel about that? And so whatever mudroom I have, it's all just grace on top of grace. It's all his provision. It's all the unmerited kindness of his grace expressed to us. And that provision should impact my life. It ought to mark me. It ought to lead me to being satisfied in the blessing that is my mudroom. Similarly to contentment, there's specific areas that I struggle with in regards to charity. My life is marked most by a lack of charity when I feel like people or an organization like aren't going to steward well what I give them. Anybody relate to that one? That they're undeserving, actually, maybe, of getting a gift. Yet the, the, a life marked by God's provision would encourage me to consider that God is the one that gave the most to the most undeserving, which was me. See, I, I can struggle in the area of charity when I don't think that the gift or my time will be met with thank you or appreciation. Yet a life marked by God's provision encourages me to see that we can give without a need of a return. You don't need a thank you. You already have everything in Christ. We already possess everything. Living a life marked by his provision ought to produce growing contentment and growing charitable saints, should it not? Who, who wrestle with it, who fail at it, come hang out with me for a little while, who fail at it, but, but desire to grow in it nonetheless, who want to grow in contentment, who want to grow in charity because, because we're motivated out of the rich abundance, the, the provision of our God, right? Amen? What we already have in Christ motivated out of that. My prayer is that we would be a, a, a church that wants that, who wants to do it together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just confess that I have such a small view of your provision, and because I have such a small view of your provision and what you've done, Lord Jesus, I wrestle. I struggle with contentment. I struggle with being charitable. And so God, I pray for me, for my own home, for my heart, for this church, Lord Jesus, that we would be people that, that are motivated to be content and motivated to be charitable, not, not to gain anything, Lord Jesus, but because we possess it all in you, that we are so gripped by your great grace. that we would be people that are just drenched with it. And that we would 
desire to point people to you because of it, Lord Jesus, that we would have lives that are marked by it for your glory, Lord Jesus, for your, um, the good of your people, Lord Jesus, for the good of this church, for no other reasons, Lord Jesus, but for your glory. And so, God, I pray that we would leave here emboldened to marinate on the gospel, that we would, that we would desire to live lives um, that are marked by your great, great, great provision. We love you. And we pray, amen.